At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Habits, Ancient Practices for Today's World, where we'll learn to reject culture's endless stream of quick fixes for God's time-tested truth. Together, we'll rediscover age-old practices that draw us to Him, where true satisfaction awaits. This morning, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We are going to be in chapter 2 this morning. And while you turn there, I have a question for you that uh, I want you to think about and I want you to honestly answer in your own heart and in your own mind. You don't have to shout it out, but I want you to answer this question. What will it take for you to be happy? What will it take for you to be happy? Or or maybe another way of answering the question is, I will be happy when? And then just fill in the blank and think about it. What is it going to take for you to truly be happy? Maybe you'll truly be happy when you get that new iPhone. Right? Or maybe you'll be happy when you get that new car or the new house or the promotion. Or maybe when you finally get a job. Or maybe... You're waiting until you're married. That's when you think that life is just going to be all that. You know, the truth is, is that we constantly live our lives trying to put different things in that line. I remember back, back in the 80s, it was Christmas time. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I will finally be happy if I get an Atari 2600. Like, that's all I really wanted. I was like, finally, I will have arrived and I will be happy if I get an Atari 2600. And guess what? I, f- I actually got an Atari 2600 for that Christmas. And I'll tell you, I played that thing till my fingers bled. And I enjoyed it and I had fun. But guess what? Not shortly after the Atari 2600 came out, there was rumblings that Nintendo was going to come out with something different. And I just had to have the Nintendo. And so I worked hard one summer, really, really hard one summer to raise enough money to buy a Nintendo, an NES. And I did. And, and I was happy. But then Sega come out with it, came out with the Genesis. And I'm like, oh, man, if I could just get the Genesis, then I'll finally be happy. So I worked really, really hard and I bought the Genesis. And I was happy, kind of. Because then Nintendo came out with the 64. Right? And so then I had to, and you see where I'm going, right? I don't even know what we're up to now, like the, the, the PlayStation 17. I don't know if it's Xbox 47. I don't know, but I'll tell you what, if you're holding on for the next gaming system and you're like, I'll finally be happy when the next gaming system comes out, guess what? It's not the last one. Another one is coming. You know, you can go, even go to my house, and I, I used to think that having an iPhone would be the greatest thing. And iPhones have come and gone. And we actually have an iPhone drawer at our house that's full of paperweight iPhones. <laughs> so you're going to get that in a little bit. You see, we're born, I believe, with this seemingly unsatisfiable hunger for pleasure and peace. Like it's as though we're born knowing that something is missing. That we're not whole and we're not complete. And you know, we live in a world where we're constantly bombarded by things that promise peace and pleasure. 
If you buy the latest product, if you find another boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife, if you get a different position at work, if you have bigger possessions. But we all know in the pursuit of all of these things, none of those things have actually brought peace. They've never really satisfied us. And even as much as Snickers wants to promise you that you'll be really satisfied, you know, Snickers fully satisfies. You know, the problem with Snickers is that my body burns those calories. And in just a little bit, I'm going to be hungry again. So Snickers can't fully satisfy. But we live in this world where everyone's saying, come try me, come do this and be happy. This process of trying to find pleasure in things of the world is the same futility in life that King Solomon experienced and warns us against in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at this series entitled Smoke and Mirrors, trying to find purpose and meaning in life. And Solomon, as he's, as he's later on in his life, as he's looking back on his life, and he's contemplating all the things that he's learned, he identifies the fact that there are two ways in which you can view life. He says the one way that you can view life is an under-the-sun view, meaning that, that you see things from a very secular perspective, meaning that all life is is the here and now. All that we have and all that is is right now. But then he says there's another way of viewing life, and it's under heaven, meaning that we view life as God is creator and God is the ultimate authority over all that is, and each one of us are accountable to this creator God. And the way that you view life, if it's under the sun, then there is no God. There is no afterlife. There is no eternity. So the only thing that matters right now is the here and now. If we view life from a theistic view, as, as God is creator, then the here and now is important because it helps prepare us for eternity. And so Solomon is saying, if you look at life from under the sun, it always leads to futility. It always leads to frustration. It always leads to broken promises and misplaced pleasures. But if we view life as under the sun, as God is the ultimate authority of all things, that's where we find meaning. That's where we find purpose. And so either you can view life from a secular view or from a the theistic view. And over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the secular view and breaking it down and showing how it doesn't satisfy, how it doesn't meet our needs. And we began two weeks ago taking a look at the naturalistic view. Meaning that some people believe that, that all that's here is, is all a part of nature. That we're all here by chance and we're all here just for, for this life and then that's it. And we broke that down and we said, now that can't be it. Because nature, even in itself, seems like it is just in a repetitive process that's not moving anywhere. So the seasons change and the earth rotates around the sun and all of those things happen. And it's not going anywhere. And Solomon says, that's futile. And that our lives are but a mist and a part of this process that's moving towards nothingness. And we believe differently. We believe that God is creator and, and that as God has created all things, he's moving all things to his end. That all things are moving to the uh, eventual glorification of God for all eternity. Last week we took a look at intellectualism. 
And we see that part of secularism is saying that, that I can have all that I need and I can do all things through my mind. That all I need to do is be smarter. And if I'm, if I'm the smartest person in the room, then I'll finally have peace. And we learned last week the problem with intellectualism is that being smart does not end racism. Being smart cannot mend broken relationships. And though being smart may be able to help cure cancer, being smart cannot cause an end to the curse of death. We saw last, last week, we saw that God is all wise and that God is all knowing. And because God is also unique from creation, he's also involved in creation, that God is, has all wisdom and God sees life differently so we can trust in him when our lives don't make sense. And today, the third smaller view of secularism that we're gonna break apart is the idea of hedonism. Hedonism says that the ultimate purpose of life is to pursue personal pleasure. That's the goal of life. That's what hedonism says. Hedonism says all of life is here for your pleasure. Do whatever makes you feel happy. Do whatever makes you feel good and don't worry about the consequences. Because when you pursue pleasure, then you will find meaning and purpose and understanding in life. And if we look at our culture today, we see that this idea rules the day. Everywhere we look, we're encouraged to go do what makes us happy. And today, as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, what we're going to see is that God, through Solomon's experiences, is going to dismantle this way of viewing life. You see, Solomon figured that since he had all the means that he had, he, he was wealthy and he had wisdom and he had everything, all the resources at his disposal. He decided that he would go after pleasure wherever it was possible. And he believed that if he gave himself over to this, that surely there he would find joy. But we're gonna see that in the end, he discovered that the pursuit of pleasure, of earthly pleasure, left him gravely disappointed. It was like trying to grasp smoke. Look at me, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Solomon writes, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I will make great works, or I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and I planted in them all the kinds of fruit trees. I made myself beautiful pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So, so Solomon is here and he's saying, I gave myself over to pursuing pleasures. Everything under the sun. Everything from a secular view. Everything apart from God, I, I have used and I, he, he used and he abused everything that God had created and tried to find pleasure. And he says, it is all vanity. It didn't bring him peace. It didn't bring him understanding. And so today, what I want us to look at, I want to answer the question. Why is pleasure so short lived? Because that's the problem. It's like the Snickers bar, right? You eat it. And you may be satisfied for a moment, but in three hours, you're going to be hungry again. You're going to need something else. So why is pleasure so short-lived? I, I appreciate the fact that Solomon shows and says that he applies his heart to the efforts of pursuing pleasure. He wants to acquire much and to do much. He says he was going to give himself over to plunge himself into pleasure and see what it got him. I like what Solomon does here. It's as, as he's reflecting upon his experience, as he describes, I, I kind of see it as though Solomon is walking through the city that he has created with his life, with all of his efforts and all the things that he's done. And he has developed and made the city called Hedonismville. Right? And then through, from verses 2 through uh, 9, he's going to go through and describe this city that he has developed, this city that he has made. His first stop in his city is the comedy club. Right? He says, I'm going to find peace and I'm going to find meaning by going to the comedy club. In verse 2 he says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and the pleasure, what use is it? So he tried to, to dull himself or tried to fill the void in his life through laughter. I'm going to find everything that makes me happy and makes me laugh. And it's not there. Then he moves on down to the next building in Hedonismville. He goes from the country or the comedy club. He goes to the bar. He says in verse 3, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how I lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days in their life. What he's saying here is he, he, he pursued finding joy through wine and through alcohol. And even in this, this process, he says there were two ways in which he did it. He still guided his heart in wisdom, which is kind of an understanding that he, he sought out and was a connoisseur of the finest wines. He wanted to, to understand and wanted to grow in this. But then he also gave himself over to folly as it comes to wine. We see that he gave himself over to being a blubbering drunk. So he's seen both ends of that, and there he didn't find peace. Then he moves on in verse 4 to talk about his house. And after plenty of trips, I'm sure, to Home Depot and Lowe's, he has made great works. That's what he says in verse 4. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. He's done all of this. I built great houses with my hands. And then he goes from the house in verse 5. He goes into the backyard. He says, I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in them all kinds of fruit. Verse 6, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he's filled his backyard with plantations and with pools. And it's almost as though we, we get a sense in which um, Solomon is trying to recreate his own Eden. 
Right? He's trying to bring all of these trees and all of this. He's trying to create a utopian in his own backyard. But look at who it's for. He says, I made all these things for myself. He's trying to find personal pleasure in all these things. Then he goes on and he moves now to his ranch. In verse 7, he says, I bought male and female slaves and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before in Jerusalem. So he's looking out over his ranch. And then he takes us to a safe. It's somewhere in the palace. He says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings didn't find it there and then he moves on to the club or the concert hall and he says then I gathered to be singers both men and women I gathered them and they sang for me I partied hardy I was in the mosh pit and I didn't find meaning and then he moves on to the bedroom he says as many concubines the delight of the sons of man Sexual pleasure still didn't fulfill. To many, you would look at Solomon's life and you'd say, wow, what an amazing city. I want to go to Hedonismville. I want to live in Hedonismville. We would say, what a life he has. But then we would look upon his life and he says, I had all these things. And he says, as I consider all of them, they are empty and they are meaningless. gave himself over he says if we we look at verses 9 through 11 what we see is he he piles up a bunch of terms that show his bitter discontentment and his disillusionment he says this was toil this was vanity this was striving after wind there was no profit none of this stuff gave me meaning under the sun materialism and consumerism failed to provide the life and meaning that he so desired These ideas of pleasure were so short-lived. But why? Why are they so short-lived? He goes on later on in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 to describe the answer to this why. Why is it so short-lived? He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10, he says, He who loves money and the pleasure it promises will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. See, the problem is, and what he describes and understands, is that the world doesn't supply enough pleasure to fully satisfy. The world cannot supply enough pleasure to fully satisfy you. You can't eat enough food to fully be satisfied because you're going to continue to be hungry. Ask anyone, and they'll tell you, how much is enough money? And you say, well, if I just have a little bit more. We're always looking for that next thing. So the things of this world never fully satisfied. There will always be new technology that comes out. There'll be a newer version of what you have. The vacation that you're hoping for will end. You'll go out and one day the fish won't bite. Someone else will always have something bigger and better than yours. Pleasure has a way of promising more than it can produce. Hear that. When it comes to pleasure, the advertising agency is better than the manufacturing department. 
big promises, but never fully providing. So the world doesn't supply enough pleasure to fully satisfy. The second reason is that every pleasure of the world is temporary. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 15, this is what Solomon says. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hands. There's nothing permanent in this world under the sun. Everything's going to die. Things are going to break. Things are going to rust. They're going to become obsolete. They will be destroyed. Whether pleasure comes from experience or accomplishment or a treasure, the, pre- the treasure never and the pleasure never really lasts. You know, when I was a, a young person, probably in high school, I, I remember I was sitting around making a list in my mind of, of all the things that I wanted in my life that I would be able to define my life as being successful. And one of the things that I, I wanted to, to use as a defining mark of my success was my house. And so I came up with a list of all the things that I wanted in my house. Strangely enough, I, I, I came up with a really odd list, and I'm going to give this to you. My list was I wanted a house that was on a state line. Don't ask me why. I just thought that's kind of unique and kind of, kind of crazy to live on a state line. Like, one the moment I'm in this state and the next minute I'm in this state, how cool is that, even though it's an imaginary line? It's just really cool. So I wanted to live on a state line. I wanted to have a house that had a pond. I wanted to have a house that had lots of land. And I wanted to have a house that was uh, on a golf course. Now Google that search and see how many houses that you can find. And that was, that was it. And so that was my goal as a kid. And, and you know, I don't, I don't remember if I prayed about it or whatever, but it was, it was my list. And years later, I'll never forget this Saturday afternoon. I'm sitting on my mower, and I'm, I'm mowing my, my property, my acreage. And it's almost in that moment God, like, brought back to mind that list from years ago. And I, I, I honestly dead stopped as I was mowing my lawn, and I began to think, I'm like, my goodness, God gave me what I wanted. You see, at that time, the church I pastored was in a small town in West Kentucky, and it was right on the state line between Kentucky and Tennessee. And about two miles down the road was my house. My house was actually in Tennessee. So I worked in Kentucky, but I lived in Tennessee. And the strangest thing is that my, at that time, my uh, mailbox was actually in Kentucky, even though I lived in Tennessee. So every day, I crossed over that state line to get my mail. And the way that my house was set up is that we had this roundabout um, driveway that kind of cut off the corner of our house. And so you could enter from Kentucky and then exit through Tennessee. That's how cool it was. I had a pond that was stocked with fish so I could go fishing whenever I wanted to. And from my bathroom window, you could look out and see the number one, the first tea box from the country club across the street. As I stopped, I was like, oh my goodness. God, you gave it all to me. And it was like God was saying to me, well, are you happy? No, I'm not happy, God. I gotta mow this lawn. I spend half my life mowing this freaking lawn and I'm not happy, right? As I'm in the midst of trying to care for all this, this house was so massive and the property was so massive. I lived, gave all my free time over to caring for this stupid house. And God's like, are you happy? 
And I'm like, thank you, God, for giving me this. But all I really want is you. All I really want is you. And I think that's the place that Solomon has come. He's tried it all. And he said, it never brings about the peace. I mean, think about it for a moment. Think about all the prayers that you've prayed to God. Right? Think about the times that you prayed that God would bless you with a child. Right? And then you finally got that child. And think about how much heartache that child has brought you. Or think about all the years that you lived in singleness and you finally prayed. You're like, oh God, bring me a spouse. And God brings you a spouse. And how, are, how many times now are you so dissatisfied with the thing that you prayed for? Right? Brothers and sisters, we're never going to find peace in the things of this world. Take Solomon's word for it from his personal experience and from the pain that he lived. So possessions don't bring peace and meaning. meaning. So hedonism must be rejected. We must reject it. But instead, I want us to take some time and look at God's design for pleasure. And this is the second truth I want us to see from the passage today, is that God is a well that will never run dry. You see, God is a well that never runs dry because God is outside of this created order, right? Anything that is created here will die and will not satisfy. So something that that can truly satisfy us has to be outside of this created order. And the greatest thing about God is that he's both outside the created order and he's also inside the created order. And God has created you with a hole, with a, a, a void inside of you that only he can fill. Only he can fill. Let's look at this, and we'll see Scripture as we learn from it. What I want you to see is that God created us with the ability to enjoy life and its pleasures. This is God's design. God designed you and created you with the ability to enjoy life and its pleasures. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 says this. We see this truth play out. And it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, There he put the man whom he formed, and out of the ground the Lord God had made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. You see, God created pleasure. God intends us to experience the pleasure in this present world. So pleasure is not a bad thing. So many people there say, oh, I don't want to go to church because then I won't be able to do anything fun. Well, no. I don't want to follow Jesus because he's going to take away all the fun in the world. No. We want to follow Jesus because in following Jesus, we finally understand what true pleasure is and we we can never exhaust it. So God created us with the ability to enjoy life and his pleasures. The second truth is that with these pleasures... God has designed boundaries that benefit our experience of pleasure. God God has given us, he says, I've given you the gift of pleasure, but I've also given you boundaries. It's kind of like why why we sometimes fence in our backyard with our kids. We're like, hey, go outside and play, but we're going to put this fence around to protect you and to keep you safe. Don't go outside the fence because I can't protect you outside of there. 
So God has given us the gift of pleasure, but he's also given us boundaries. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see, both food and sexual intimacy can both be beneficial and sinful. Right, let me just, you know the reason that God gives us food? The reason that God has given us food is so that we would know that we're finite. God gives us food so that we would be reminded that we need him to supply the food. And so when we eat, that's why we give grace and we pray. We say, God, thank you for this food because I am not capable of producing it and making it on my own. I need you and I'm hungry. And if I don't eat, I will surely die. Right, that's a gift, but we can abuse it. We take, take sexual intimacy. He's given us this as a gift a gift to be used inside of marriage so that inside of marriage, what can happen is my soul can mingle with the soul of another person in a way that honors and glorifies God. God gives us the human relationship of having a spouse so that we can have the most vulnerable position and most vulnerable relationship this side of heaven. It's not meant to be abused. It's not meant just to be trashed and feel good for a moment and move on. Paul says, God has created lots of good things, but not all things are good. And he gets to the fact of saying, we need to guard ourselves from becoming addicted to anything. To where I want this more than I want God. God has designed us to find our greatest pleasure in him. Psalm 16 verse 11 says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fulfillment of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 107 verse 9 says, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with every good. When our ultimate affection is for our created, who is the limited source of all satisfying pleasure, then our delight as the created in our creator brings peace and delight in our hearts. See, the Apostle Paul, this idea of pursuing pleasure outside of God being painful is also reminded in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, as Paul is writing. He says, For though they knew God, being all creation, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You see, in our lives there is this thing called sin that we want to chase after and instead of, of filling our, that void in our life with God himself, we want to fill it with sin. And each one of us have sinned and violated God's commands and God's laws. But God hasn't left us in our sinful state, but God has rescued us through Jesus. Jesus has come to die in our place, to take the penalty for our sin and to give us life. 
Remember as, as Jesus is sitting there in the New Testament with the woman at the well. And he was there with, with human need. And she was there with human need. They needed to draw water from this well in order to survive. And then he begins this conversation with her. And the woman's like, do you want me to draw water for you from this well? And Jesus says, no, if you knew who was sitting next to you, you'd ask me to give you water. For the water that I give will not just allow you to satisfy your thirst, but the water that I give you will indwell you and then will begin to overflow into a fountain of life that will never end. Jesus says, whoever drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. This is the promise that he says, I want to be your all-satisfying source. And then John 6, 35, Jesus says that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not be hungry. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is claiming He's putting it out there. I want to be your satisfying source of all things that you need. And we know that Paul, later on, as he writes Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he gives us this beautiful nugget of truth. He says, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The only thing that Paul wanted to do was to know Jesus. There's a Christian pastor, his name is John Piper. Maybe you've heard of him. And he's taken all of this into account. And one of the things that he says is that as Christians, our lives should not be pursuing hedonism, but instead he comes up with this term, Christian hedonism. He says this should be the pursuit of our lives, that as Christians, we should pursue Christ as the source of our pleasure. He, t- he takes one of the statements from uh, the catechism and he says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Right? The chief end of man, the purpose of our lives is to glorify God and the best way we glorify God is by enjoying him. John Piper in his book, he says this, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. You want to bring God glory, this is why you were created, then be satisfied in him. See, all that he's given you is good and it is enough. Seeking God and seeking to be satisfied in him. It's a source that will never run dry. So what does this look like in real life? What would it look like for someone to truly find their satisfaction in Jesus? Well, I think this week I was reading about, I think, a really good example. Maybe earlier this week you saw Sidney McLaughlin from the U.S. run and break the world record in the 400-meter hurdles. Did you guys see that? Yeah. Well, this is what she said right after that. She says, my goal in life is giving glory to God. It's all this season, hard work and dedication, that I'm just really grateful to be able to present, represent my country and to have this opportunity. She understood that God had given her the platform to, and the ability to run. And with all of this, her, she understood that her goal was to give glory to God. But that's exciting. But I want to go back to a quote that she made back in June. This is right after she won the U.S. Olympic trials as she's talking to a reporter. This is what she said. She says, my faith was being tested all week, from bad practices to three false starts to even delay in the meet. I just kept God hearing, I just kept hearing God say, just focus on me. It was the best race plan I could have ever assembled. I no longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect his perfect will that is already set in stone. 
I don't deserve anything. But by grace through faith, Jesus has given me everything. Records come and go. The glory of God is eternal. Thank you, Father. Yeah. That's what it's all about. It's not about performance. God doesn't care about how much you do. God cares that you're ple- you find your pleasure in him. Where we can honestly say with our hearts, God, I don't want a bigger house. I just want you. God, I don't want a, a different husband or a different wife. I just want you. That is the desire of our hearts when we find our pleasure in him. So today we have a choice. We can continue to look to pleasure in the world and we can continue to find the pain that that produces and the frustration that comes about or we can look to Jesus and find joy. It's the only place it's ever going to be found is in Jesus. So today, as we conclude and as I pray and we get ready to sing, Maybe there is something that's been in that line. I will finally be happy when. I will finally be happy when the loved one comes back. Or I'll finally be happy when. If there's something that is honestly in that place, then I encourage you to lay it at Jesus' feet. And for the one time and for the rest of your life, say, I will finally be happy when I have all of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word, your words of truth that bring life to our souls. And though, Father, we come this morning realizing that in the times of life, we are so tempted to look for pleasure and meaning in the things of this world. Father, we know from your word today and believe that it is true that pleasure is only found in you. So, Father, today, Help us confess the lies that we've believed and help us to fully turn to you as fully surrendered people, being able to say, all I want is you. And the greatest thing about that is when we do that, everything else falls into place. When we find our pleasure in you, we can work at that hard to work place. When we find our pleasure in you, we can live in a culture that is against you. When we find our pleasure in you, we will seek to be reconciled to our loved ones. When we find our pleasure in you, you bring all things to glorify you. So Father, today, help us to lift our hands and help us to purely have all of our affection all on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.